Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, James Stravidis, of course, his book, my book of the summer, a summer ago on China, 2034, we arrayed a book on the Black Sea. Admiral Stavidis, of course, writing for Bloomberg Opinion. You yep. see him often with NBC. And, of course, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Admiral Stavidis, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, always a pleasure, Tom and Paul. I want to talk about the Black Sea, about how narrow the strait is through Istanbul, about a need to build a NATO presence in Romania to the west of Crimea, and specifically the different timelines of the U.S., NATO, and a bridge to Crimea called the Crimean Bridge now by the Russians. It just seems to me the Black Sea is so important. Do we need to show the flag now in the Black Sea? Oh, absolutely, Tom. And, you know, good news, we have four of our absolute top-end Arleigh Burke-class Aegis destroyers that are stationed, home-ported in Rota, Spain. That's the opposite end of the Mediterranean, but that's the beauty of a Navy. So it's a commute. I would push, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a commute, but it's a, it's a doable commute. And um, my understanding is um, those plans are in place to flush them to the eastern Mediterranean and perhaps more significantly, Tom, for more of that same class of high-end missile defense destroyers are underway from Norfolk going to back up the four destroyers in Rota, Spain. That's a pretty considerable flotilla. And yes, we ought to be moving some of those ships into the Black Sea. Admiral, as, as you step back and look at this thing holistically, what do you think, based upon your experience at NATO, what do you think Mr. Putin is really looking for here? It just seems oddly out of time and place to be massing troops and tanks on an Eastern European border. Um, I think Putin's after three things. One is he loves being the center of attention, and he is playing uh, to his population. He's playing to the nations around the periphery of Russia. So he likes being the center of attention, even in the middle of the Olympics, for example. Yep. Number two, he wants to crack the sovereignty of Ukraine. He knows he will never be able to completely dominate it, pull it back to the Soviet Union. That's what he wants. He knows that's not going to happen. But by annexing the Crimea, creating this land bridge Tom talked about a moment ago, he has the ability to mm-hmm. um, effectively take their sovereignty away. And third and finally, he wants to divide us. He wants to divide NATO. He would love to see the Germans, for example, not stand quite strongly with us. I think they will. But he wants to divide the NATO alliance. So those are his three objectives. General Austin, of course, with his uh, effort in Germany early in his career and then to Central Command, of course, with a real understanding of Putin as a Eurasian dominant leader. I want to go back to how we're going to save face here, Uh, Admiral, as I'm sure you've studied at War Colleges. George Anderson, chief of naval operations, Cuba Missile Crisis, said to President Kennedy, Mr. President, the Navy will not let you down. How does the Secretary of Defense not let down Mr. Biden and the allies? He will do uh, two 
fundamental things. One, and I see Lloyd Austin, who I know extremely well. He's a contemporary of mine, a West Point grad. We won't hold that against him. But uh, I know General Austin. It was a weak moment. Indeed. As Secretary Austin, he's doing it today in Brussels. He is being a strong, forceful voice for alliance unity. And number two, on the war fighting side of this thing, we're not going to send troops into Ukraine, nor should we. But we ought to be flooding the zone with our military armament, intelligence, and cyber, and the Secretary of Defense is doing that as well. Your wonderful book, 2034, is about three parties trying to save face. The Cuban Missile Crisis was to get an exit for Khrushchev to save face. How do we assist this interesting guy from Moscow to save face? Well, he is, uh, in every sense, a character out of a Dostoyevsky novel. You can stop reading CIA reports if you want to understand Putin and read Russian literature, which (laughs) is to say he has a very dark side. And, Tom, you're on the right note. We need to provide a climb down for him if we want to avoid a massive war, a scaled war in southeastern Europe. So here's what I would do. Uh, Go to him at the table and say, let's talk about conventional forces, rebalancing them on both sides of the border. Let us uh, put missile defense on the table. That's something that we have pushed. He would like us to reduce our commitment there. I think we can talk about that. And third and finally, Let's have a conversation about intermediate cruise missiles, intermediate range cruise missiles, which both nations have walked away from an INF treaty. Point being, that's all very technical sounding, Tom and Paul, but um, these are things that he understands, we understand, they, they create points of negotiation so we can, as Churchill said, um, talk, 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 not war, war, war. I think that's where we want to land here. Right. And uh, Tom, we have some headlines uh, crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Biden says President Biden says probability of invasion is, quote, very high. Uh, Biden says he has no plans to call Putin. Admiral, just wondering here, um, you know, you mentioned one of the key uh, strategic aims of Putin is to test NATO. It appears to me. And again, I'm, I'm of an age when I remember when NATO was a, a real thing when you were commanding it. It seems like NATO's standing pretty strong, pretty united right here. What is your take? I'm very proud of the alliance at this moment. And I think the Secretary General, who's a tough-minded former Prime Minister of Norway, he sounds like a Viking. He's a serious (laughs) guy. And uh, with Lloyd Austin standing next to him, the alliance is hanging together. Let's be candid here. Watch Germany, because Germany's economy is so intertwined because of the potential of Nord Stream 2 complications. But so far, the brand new chancellor of Germany, Chancellor Schulz, is holding strong with the Biden team and with the alliance. If you're just joining us, James Stravitas with us this morning. We extend our conversation here on Bloomberg Radio. Across America, we do it with futures at negative 30. The VIX 25.74 and headlines continuing to come out. Secretary Blinken is scheduled to speak at the United Nations here somewhere in the vicinity of the 10 o'clock hour. Admiral Stravitas, I, I, I want to go back to the to-do here, and I take it off of Angela Merkel 2014, the time of Crimea, the time where dreams were shattered in the Western Central Europe over how we would deal with Russia. And she was heated in comments and said, forget about the 19th century, the 20th century, World War II, etc. We must look forward. What are we looking forward to now? 
First, let's uh, pause and just say Angela Merkel is uh, a remarkable leader of Germany, four-time chancellor of Germany, and has steered that nation through some very complicated times and grew up herself in East Germany with a Russian boot on her throat. So she knows what she's talking about here. What we look forward to, Tom, is all the things we've commented on this morning, which is keeping the democracies aligned. And here I don't mean just NATO. Adding to that NATO mix of 30 democracies, focusing on Australia, on Japan, on South Korea, on India over time. We need to create a mass, a critical mass of democracies who can stand against these authoritarians. And I'll conclude here, Tom, by saying what we ought to be worrying about in this moment is the convergence of Russian and Chinese right. objectives. And, and Paul, they are this, drawing closer together. This is so important as we talked to Angela Stent the other day on Bloomberg surveillance of a return almost to a Yalta structure, which is where China stepped in for so many decades as yep. part of the debate. And that redounds, Paul, in, in, particularly in terms of Stravitas's navy of Black Sea and Ukraine over to the Formosa Strait. Yeah, Admiral, I'd love to get your views here just on the China angle here. If I'm President Xi, I've got the Olympics. I want the world's attention on me. How do you think China is thinking about what's going on in Europe? Does it have you know, skin in the game or is it just gonna stay outside? It will stay outside and President Xi is undoubtedly grumpy about what is occurring in terms of the spotlight uh, swinging almost inexorably back to Vladimir Putin. But President Xi has his eyes not on the Olympics. His eyes are on the 20th Party Congress late this year when he will bring forward his candidacy for a third five-year term as the leader of China. So he wants a year of living quietly Mm -hmm. ahead. He's going to get it. I've got to go uh, back, Admiral, to soldiers and sailors at risk. The Black Sea is so contained. I mean, we, we, I would suggest most of our uh, uh, listeners have this understanding. There's a narrow strait off Istanbul. It's romantic as all get out. Yep. Paul and from Russia would love. Right. Sean Connery, right. you know, but that's <laughs> not the reality. What is the reality, Admiral, of the constraint of an 18-mile strait? The reality is a number of international treaties and conventions that limit the size and tonnage of warships that can pass through it. It is also, your point, Tom, highly constrained water space. And when you put American destroyers, Romanian frigates, Bulgarian minesweepers operating alongside Russian destroyers, Ukrainian patrol boats, it is a tight little space in there. And here's what I worry about. The captains of those ships are young men and women. They're people in their 30s. I was uh, 36 years old when I took command of an Arleigh Burke class destroyer. These are young people, wow. and their crews are even younger. And so the, the possibility of a miscalculation in yep. this tight water space is significant. We ought to worry about that. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much. Of course, the book 2034, we thank him for perspective uh, today.
Let's get to it on radio and television. We monitor the headlines, particularly from Moscow, eight hours in advance. Let's call it 4 a.m. I believe it is 4 a.m. in, uh, 4 p.m. rather, in Moscow. Long ago and far away, as I talked to David Rubenstein yesterday, there was a small matter of Cuba and a missile crisis. I remember clearly as a child, my father saying years on that they hid the newspapers from us. Michael Holland was holding court on the football field at St. Edwards in Cleveland during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Michael, one question on the geopolitics of the moment and our combined history. Do you push it aside when you have money at risk? Uh, absolutely not, Tom. I think that all of the things that you've been reporting this morning are part of the uh, uh, battle for investment survival. There's a, uh, uh, a, a recurrence of, of things that are uh, going on uh, right now including uh, comments about Saudi Arabia and where they are and what was going on back then. Uh, we had the Arab oil embargo, Saudi Arabia in the middle of that. Uh, prices went up dramatically. Uh, I think the concern that a number of people have uh, recently voiced, smart people like Charlie Munger, uh, uh, are, are uh, echoing the, the problems that inflation, which many people who are listening to this call right now, have never experienced. Back in the 1950s, uh, it was one of the worst things that happened to our country because the, the most vulnerable and the, the, the least able to cope with inflation are those who are hurt the most by inflation. If we get it again, it's going to be very ugly. Part of the problem is people haven't experienced it, so people are e easily into denial. I believe the Fed minutes had a 2.6% per, uh, forecast for inflation several quarters out. Uh, I hope they're right. Michael, let's talk about the fancy land of the Fed forecasts. Not my words, the words of the former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley. He's come on this program and called them fancy land, the dot plot for 2024, just north of 2%. We're trying to work out, Michael, not the start of the journey. Most people assume that's March. The pace of the journey and the destination. How far do you think this Fed's going to have to push it? Um, my guess, and I have great humility when it comes to predicting, Jonathan, as you know, my guess is that it's going to be much more than anyone in February of 2022 believes right now. I think that uh, we, we've uh, listened this morning and, and previously to all of the supply problems, supply chain problems, uh, energy problems. Uh, labor is actually the, the largest component of the concern that uh, uh, hyperinflation uh, is caused by. So I think that uh, the, the fact that we don't have a lot of people who are uh, looking for jobs right now um, we have a, a scarcity of labor, uh, bespeaks uh, higher inflation. Wage price spiral is a phrase that we used to hear years ago. So this is an important point, Michael, because if the Fed is forced to move well more than the market is currently expecting, are you basically saying there is no way for the Fed to adequately address the inflationary pressures without causing a recession? Uh, Lisa, in a word, yes. Uh, Paul Volcker came in to... Uh, his position to try to cure the ugly uh, ugliness of inflation. He, got, he started in August 1979. I wrote it down. Um, it, inflation peaked in 1980 at 14%. Long treasuries went to 14, 15% in 1980, 81. Um, the, we had 10 years of, of I, I can't believe I'm saying all these negative things, but I'm just repeating history here. Um, it, it's, these things are possible because they're possible for people who are serious about their own investments. 
uh, battle for investment survival requires you say it's, it's possible. So what would you do if it, if it if if you had some certainty that it might happen? So and, uh, what would you do? What would you what are you doing if you're if you're seeing this as a likely possibility? Well, one of the things, Lisa, people will will throw up the. Uh, you know, stocks are an inflation hedge. Well, that's true if you have moderate inflation. When you have uh, seriously large inflation, which we may or may not have, again, humility rules my comments, um, I believe that you have a situation where uh, all markets, the tradable markets, are affected negatively. You say, well, what about gold? Take a look at the history of gold. What about real estate? Take a look at the history of real estate in these periods. When you go back to the 1970s and 1980s and you read the history, you say, all markets are affected. It's only a question of where do you lose the least money? One of the things that the people listening to this forecast, or lack of forecast, I should say, uh, would, would uh, be wise to think about is that even though you lose money holding cash, um, you lose less than if you own long treasuries, because when you own long treasuries and rates go from where they are now to where they were uh, years ago in hyperinflation, you lose a ton of money, and you're supposed to be safe in the bonds. So bonds are a bad place to be. Stocks are, are less bad. Michael, we appreciate your time. You are a true market historian, and I'll always learn something speaking to you. Michael Holland there of Holland & Company. Thank you, sir. I've stated they're data dependent. I believe that's what Kathleen Bastiancic has written. She's chief U.S. financial economist at Oxford Economics. Kathy, I look at the data and I even look at the tertiary data, Empire this, Philadelphia that, seven other indices you know, I don't know. What does this tertiary and secondary data say about the growth first derivative in America? Well, hi, Tom. Happy to be with you. Um, so I think on one hand, we are seeing some impact from Omicron, but but overall, it's it's rather limited um, when we look at the tertiary or, or the, you know, the headline data. Uh, and I say that particularly retail sales um, this week really surprised um, to the upside. The, the um, increase was more than almost more than double the consensus expectations and and the core number which feeds into consumer spending as part of GDP was quite strong. So bottom line, um, we thought that GDP would be about flat for the first quarter, largely due to Omicron, maybe even could turn negative. And now it looks to be solidly positive, probably somewhere between one to two percent. Um, and then that means that going into Q2, things, health conditions look better. Um, the economy should get back onto a more robust path. So I think net net, we're, we're looking at it's still an economy that's really quite healthy and demand is really strong. Kathy, let's dig into that a little bit, because actually, if you look at the Atlanta now uh, GDP now uh, index, you actually see the expectations for uh, Q1 GDP skyrocketing after yesterday or after the retail sales number that we got yesterday. What in that gave you that kind of confidence, considering the fact that a lot of people pointed to the inflation adjustments and other adjustments around the edges that would leave it with a pretty tepid uh, type of feel? Yeah, I mean, no doubt that the nominal number is much greater than, you know, faster than than the real. But um, even when we adjust for inflation, which surprised the upside in January, you're still a very strong uh, momentum, you know, coming into the, the start of the year for the consumer. And remember that that was way down by Omicron. We saw our service, you know, um, portion of retail sales was quite weak. So we do think services are going to be weak as part of consumer spending. Um, but the, the durables and non-durables goods orders were very strong in purchases. And so as we rotate um, to back to in-person services, 
um, as things, you know, health conditions get better, that should only support consumer spending for the rest of the year. Kathy, we, of course, don't expect you to get a, a foreign policy crystal ball and tell us what's going to happen with Ukraine. I do wonder, though, whether you've developed a fuller understanding of what it would mean, various scenarios, what they would mean for the Federal Reserve in March. It does complicate things when things are already quite complicated. Um, you know, on one hand, we worry about the, the impact on inflation, oil prices, um, you know, surging higher. Um, that's going to affect headline um, and, and core inflation pressures are still quite high. Um, and then the uncertainty factor, right? How does that affect asset markets and financial conditions overall? And, and what's the feedback through the Europe and the trade channel, things like that. Um, it's not the direct impact, of course, for us, uh, but it's the uncertainty. How do you monitor the Wall Street? And Kathy, your whole career has been away from this, which I give you great credibility on. The, 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 the pace of rate hikes, the parlor game of guesstimating out within a Greenspan measured mode where we're going. What's the level of certitude of that belief or the probability of that outcome? Much less than in the past, although, you know, there's always great uncertainty when you're forecasting um, the rate path. Um, you know, I think at this point, what the Federal Reserve is trying to grapple with is how quickly to get back to neutral. And do they even need to go restrictive? And what is neutral? Um, you know, there's probably a range of the Federal Reserve thinks it's around two and a half percent, right? But there's a range around that. Uh, we would say somewhere around two. It's probably somewhere between, you know, one and a half to, to maybe slightly over two percent. How quickly do they need to get back to that? And how much can the financial conditions and the economy handle that, right? I would say from my perspective, uh, Tom, I, I was a little leery about this parlor game of five, six, seven rate hikes. But um, I'm also quite impressed with how well the financial markets have handled pricing in you know, six or seven rate hikes. So we actually just um, decided that that seven is probably um, a, a good enough estimate for, for this year. And we're actually in the 50 basis point camp for March. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so it's Kathleen yeah, we, John, John, she's out of control. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we just shifted. It's you know, we, we looked at the inflation numbers and um, the, the January numbers really just um, were far faster than we thought. So now you're peaking in inflation faster. We still think it's going to decelerate through the rest of the year, but you're, the peak is higher. And when we go through our estimates, we get inflation, core inflation uh, above 3%. And we think that's unacceptably high for the Fed. So we have to hear from Powell, right? We have to hear from Powell, we have to hear from Brainerd and Williams, we haven't. And that's really gonna be the key. Are they leading towards 50 or 25? I would just add one other thing that sure. in our analysis, right? We think that starting with 50 and then pulling back to more traditional 25 basis point increments is easier for the markets to handle than starting with 25 and saying, uh oh, now we need to go 50. That could be more destabilizing. Hey, Kathy, you're not alone. You've got company. And thank you for burying the lead. That's our fault for not teasing with that <laughs> and not starting with that. Let's finish on this. Kathy, I've heard repeatedly over the last couple of days that if they don't deliver what you're talking about, it would amount to an easing of financial conditions. Do you believe so? And how much of a problem would that be? Well, I think it could, um, you know, disappoint uh, the markets that thinking that the Fed is not um, really worried about their credibility and really fighting inflation as much as they should. So it could backfire and be adverse for the for market reaction um, in that sense. And it's it's a little hard to say whether financial conditions would necessarily ease, but they wouldn't 
uh, be going necessarily in a way that the markets would feel comfortable. And I think that could be a problem. Listen, they've got the markets thinking 50-50 on 50 basis points. We might yeah. as well take it at this point. Kathy, awesome. As always, it's good to catch up with you. Kathy Bosjancic there of Oxford Economics. Martin Lowe joins us now, senior global macro like Celine, strategist. I mean, Selena's gone State for a more simple approach. Do you want to talk about Selena a little bit later? Yeah, we'll do that later. Marvin, geopolitical tensions once again, waking up, trying to process, trying to digest various headlines. How do you think all of this influences a particular central bank decision that takes place on March 16th? Yeah, I mean, from, from the Fed's perspective, I don't think it's going to affect it at all. I mean, certainly a war is um, uh, an altering event, um, particularly if it's a significant one. But um, with the tensions that have been around, um, I think the Fed has made it clear that they're playing catch up and, you know, March, March is a given. And, you know, we debate whether it's 25 or 50 and whether uh, May and June are, are, are equally live uh, at those levels. Do you believe, Marvin, that corporations domestically and, frankly, globally can adapt to what they've been given? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, they have. Um, uh, from a financial engineering perspective, they've been very quick to, to embrace and ultimately reshape their balance sheets in a way um, that buys them flexibility. Um, and, you know, these are for-profit organizations that have been nimble um, to change it to, to rapidly changing conditions, both from a global perspective as well as just from a mobility perspective. Um, and you've seen that they've been able to, to, to navigate it. So I, I do believe that that's one of the strengths in the equity markets. Well, of course, a lot of people have been baking this in for a while, even when this wasn't the case. And you do wonder how much has gotten ahead of things, especially as you've seen the biggest inflows into equity funds versus bond funds so far this quarter going back to 2013. Can that continue, especially when you see the likes of Roblox and some of these other uh, pandemic era stocks absolutely get pummeled and return to pre-pandemic normalcy? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 this often um, described um, aspect of, of uh, asset management and, and equity management that you're looking for the winners and it's a stock pickers market. I would argue that that's always the market. Um, you know, that that's what professionals get ultimately paid for. I mean, we're seeing demand for treasuries. Um, the fact that we've repriced as much as we have and still have a 2% 10-year, um, and unfortunately, to a certain degree, flattening the curve, um, shows that that there is a fixed income component component associated with that. Um, I do think I do think equity markets still um, have a, a bit of a catbird seat. It might not necessarily be U.S. and U.S. growth stocks the way it had been for the last two to five years. Um, there's there's potential diversification looking for value outside, particularly uh, geographically. Uh, but but equities still do have a catbird seat in this in this discussion. Marvin, are you actually advising people to buy longer dated bonds right now in the U.S.? I mean, I, I actually do. I actually do like treasuries uh, in here. Um, I think you see from a geopolitical uh, perspective um, just how uh, demand for that security is from um, from a hedging perspective, as well as as well as our longer term view that we're not going to see yields get back to the pre-pandemic uh, neutral rate levels. I think we're dealing with a different type of environment that way. Marvin Lowe, we've got to leave it there, sir. Thank you Thank for you. catching up with us. Marvin Lowe there of State Street. Now, we're going to do something domestic, and we are going to look at something really interesting because I was floored 
when he became the chief executive officer of AutoNation. Of course, AutoNation, hugely visible within the distribution and sale of automobiles and trucks in America. And Michael Manley is not just another CEO. This is someone steeped in the fiat religion, the Chrysler religion. I think, you, you, you know, you would even understand, Mike Manley, that in my childhood it was Renault not Renault. I mean, I go back that far enough. Just simply let us start away from earnings with how you survived this year. Used cars, wow. New cars, not. How's the year been? Well, I think, um, I think you've, you've really identified it. You, on the one hand, we've had significant demand, as you know, and we've been able to fulfill that on the used car side. And on the new car side, it's basically working as closely as we can with the OEMs to try and predict what we're actually going to receive in the month. And most of it, when it hits the ground, is sold. So that's kind of in and out. And um, the most important thing is to keep our customers informed about when their vehicles are arriving, frankly. My auto guy, Lisa Bramos, has 14 questions. Let me slip one in here. Are we going to buy electric cars? Is there a real belief here that whether they're a Porsche or whatever or not, something in the middle, or the great desire of a cheap electric car, is America going to buy them? America will buy electric cars, I have no doubt. The important question is over what time frame will they, will they cover the entire industry? I think what we're seeing is a big increase, but as you and I both know, that's a very specific demographic that's buying them at this moment in time. And what we need to see happen if there's going to be mass adoption is two things, frankly. We need to have an infrastructure that people are very comfortable with, that they can use on a daily basis. And we need to work with the OEMs to drive those prices down so they become much more affordable to the heart of the market. And when, they, when those two things happen, you're going to see adoption rates rise, but it's not going to be this year. One thing a lot of people are struggling with is how much is structural and how much was cyclical, how much of the bump that you got and frankly all auto dealerships uh, got was because of the tight supplies driving people to, no pun intended, to buy more vehicles. How much of that will persist and give you that pricing power that's just been extraordinary? So here I'm going to turn to our fourth quarter results because I think if you look at those, you get a partial answer and then, then I'll expand on it. One of the things that I think most organizations have done during the pandemic is really look at their cost base and we have removed significant cost and that is absolutely structural because what we've had to do is uh, create efficiency and productivity in a different way and we're very confident that that will survive beyond the pandemic. I think the increase that we've seen in terms of after sales revenue with more miles driven, as we get out of the pandemic, that naturally, in my view, is going to continue as well. Use volume, uh, use volume has been good and will, I think, be sustained. So we come back to margin and the big question is new vehicle margin. Because notwithstanding the fact that new vehicle volume is down, it's been more than compensated for a big spike in margin. But when I step back, what we're doing is actually selling new vehicles around MSRP. I mean, that's what we were supposed to do. So what the pandemic actually did was press a reset button on the balance of inventory. Now, the key question is, are we going to take the lessons? Are we going to take the advantage of that reset button that's been pressed and in conjunction with the OEMs, just keep the balance we need to maintain good new car pricing? I think you'll see some mitigation in terms of margin on new cars, but I really believe that lesson is now embedded and they will not return, in my view, back to the 2018-2017 margins. Wait, just to be very clear, uh, so the MSRP, that's manufacturer's suggested retail price, you think that we are going to head back to a level that is more intangible 
tandem with that suggested retail price. How do you then expect to sustain some of the momentum? And you talk about the efficiencies, but is there also an intention by dealerships to keep supplies tight, to have an order flow, to have something in order to continue uh, maintaining margins to some degree? So when I talk about our volumes, AutoNation's volumes last year, only 2% of the vehicles we sold were above MSRP. So the vast majority of our, of our uh, new vehicle invoices were at or below MSRP. And that's been able to achieve that because of a better balance between supply and demand. And I think with, with additional inventory coming in, with the demand that's there, we should be able to maintain that pricing position. Because we are talking about a reduction in the significant discounts that were required when all of the industry was sat on a multiple of stock that we have today. So there was a complete imbalance really between that supply and demand. So we've had this reset button now and inventory levels are low. In fact, they're too low. So there's an opportunity, I think, to build inventory levels up, not to where they were before, but continue to keep that balance between supply and demand so that we're selling at MSRP. Michael Manley, thank you so much for joining us. We need to move on to headlines of the moment, but the chief executive officer of AutoNation uh, in the battles of this pandemic and moving units to America in trucks and cars. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.